0: love to have Jacques Pepin standing by with words of encouragement every time they tried a new recipe.
1: I'm going to start by showing you how to make a quiche lorraine, the classic quiche lorraine, in the style of my aunt. She never pre-cooked her dough, and she did the dough usually with some lard and butter. This is a great dish at the first sauce, and it is not really complicated to do. Here is how I did it.
0: This is Think on KERA. I'm Chris Boyd. The voice you just heard was Jacques Pepin, born in France in 1935. As a small boy during World War II, he spent summers with farmers in the French countryside, people who would provide plentiful food to a growing child in exchange for some chores. He learned to cook at the side of his mother, who bought and sold a series of fixer-upper restaurants in small towns, then selling at a profit. Later, Papin apprenticed at a series of progressively more prestigious restaurants before he was called for military service, a stint that would lead to his selection as personal chef to Charles de Gaulle. When he was ready to move on, he set his sights on America, settling first in New York and turning down a gig cooking in the Kennedy White House to work for restaurateur Howard Johnson. And all of this was before he became one of the most recognizable faces in food TV, hosting award-winning PBS series including Jacques Pepin, Heart and Soul, which airs on KERA television, Saturdays at 4.30. Many of his dozens of cookbooks are still in print. He's got a new one called Heart and Soul in the Kitchen, and his 2003 memoir, The Apprentice. My Life in the Kitchen, has just been re-released in honor of his 80th birthday a few weeks ago. Jacques, welcome back to Think.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: When you were just a little boy, uh, World War II began, and you were sent to spend a summer on a farm so you'd get enough to eat. I can only imagine how lonely that must have been for you, but it was the first place that you consciously realized that food was about more than just filling your belly.
1: Yes, well, my father by then had left into the resistance, and I had two brothers, and we didn't have that much to eat. So during the school vacation in summer, uh, my mother placed us in in a farm. She knew at least we would have something to eat. There is cow, there is milk, <laughs> there is butter. So uh, she took me there on her bicycle, and uh, she had a bicycle, and we went about forty kilometer, and. Uh, and she left me there. Of course, I was sad. I was six, seven years old, but uh, the farmer took me by the hand and took me to the farm to see the cow. And she put my my hand on the tits of the cow to show me how to milk the cow. And uh, I think I still remember that uh, lukewarm, foamy glass of milk. You know, probably changed my life forever. <laughs>
0: And then at the end of the war, you remember American tanks rolling through and soldiers were throwing out chocolate bars, which you hadn't had for a long time.
1: Yes. Actually, I, according to my mother, I had uh, chocolate before the war, but that was so small, I would not remember. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, the first chocolate bar I had was thrown to me by the GI on top of the tank in, uh, in Bourg-en-Bresse, the town where I was born, you know, when, uh, when they came to liberate France. So that was, they also gave us chewing gum, which we used, my brother and some friend of us, and uh, we used the chewing gum probably for weeks, you know, <laughs> pass, passing one to the other, and keeping it for a day, giving it to another, and so forth.
0: You said your father but, was fighting in the resistance, the French resistance. What was he doing exactly?
1: My father was a cabinet maker by trade, and uh, I don't want to say that he wasn't a, a great patriot, but he was a young man, and at that time there was no television, there was no radio, we didn't even have telephone, so it was very difficult to know, to know exactly what the news were, and. Uh, but certainly in, the, I think, 1942 or so, Hitler decided that uh, all, uh, all male above 16 years old or whatever would be sent to forced labor in Germany or uh, some, some other place. So that was one of the decisions. He already had some friends who were in the, in the Maquis, you know, that is the resistance, so he decided to join them. <laughs> and that's what he did.
0: Your mother was this incredible entrepreneur who developed this business model of like rehabbing restaurants, right? She would buy one that was in terrible condition, uh, redo the kitchen, uh, fix up the restaurant, and then sell at a profit.
1: Yes, well, that's where my father came in. You know, a cabinet maker too, and certainly at home we did everything—the floor, the wall, you know, the panning and so forth. And she go to the market, and I—I uh, uh, I took in the habit of going to the market with her when she had the small restaurant in Lyon. My two brother and I—we didn't have a car, so she went to the market at like seven o'clock in the morning. So we went with her. Before school and walk the market, which was an open market along the river, and brought back the food with her, because, as I say, we didn't have a car, and then went to school. so she would walk the market one way and uh, buy on the way back, uh, keeping in mind that uh, that seller may have had a case of a mushroom which were already black, and she knew it couldn't survive the day to have it another day, so she try to get it at uh, you know at a discounted price. And then she got home, she got to the restaurant, started peeling her vegetable and did uh, her lunch. And she didn't have a refrigerator either. She had an ice box, meaning she bought a block of ice every day for, her, for the fish and the meat. At the end of the day, it was melted. And uh, so everything was new every day. At that time, everything was organic. Everything was local. And uh, I'm sure she would have liked to have a refrigerator to keep the food. But uh, everything had to be redone every day. That was the way it was.
0: Oh, that sounds so exotic and romantic to us today, but you also remember um, just being struck the first time you walked into a gigantic American supermarket, an A&P.
1: Yes, that was my first year, my first month, maybe my first week in New York, yes. Uh, I remember on on First Avenue in New York, Uh, and... um, I think it was D'Agostino brother or something. Mm-hmm. But I remember packaging, 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 and uh, uh, I remember asking, where are the mushrooms? And they said aisle five, and that was canned mushroom. There was no <laughs> leek, there was no shallot, there was no oriental vegetable, there was one type of lettuce, which was iceberg. On the other hand, there was great meat, and lobster and relatively inexpensive compared to French fries. So it was a different world, and I thought supermarket were a great idea. I mean, I was used to go from one little store to another little store to another little store, sometimes with a mile in between on my bicycle to go to the market. There, everything was under the same roof. It was a great idea, you know. <laughs>
0: Uh, When you went to Apprentice in your first restaurant kitchen away from your mother's, you were just 13 years old, still in short pants, and um, you were actually sent on this crazy errand that would have been easier had there been a supermarket that you had to go to.
1: Yeah, though, but those were... And still are the right of passage you know that you do, so you, you would send the new apprentice uh, uh to get something which doesn 't really exist uh, in <laughs> my case. they send me to get uh, uh, the the weight for the souffle you know so <laughs> Uh, they sent me to one hotel, which of course the chef knew. So uh, uh, when I get there, he said, well, we don't have it. We just uh, gave it to that other hotel or whatever, which I have to run through town to another place, to another restaurant. And uh, finally, you know, get to the last restaurant they say, well, we just got it and watch out. We just wash it and it's wet. Don't drop it. Your chef called. He's not happy with you. You've <laughs> been gone for like hours. So I was, uh, I put the, the, the big bag on my shoulder you know and uh, I didn't even look inside and when I turned the corner of the, the the street where the hotel was I realized the chef and the other apprentice and the waitress were on the sidewalk waiting for me and laughing I said what's going on <laughs> I opened and of course I had semen blocked three semen blocks carried carried <laughs> halfway through town so anyway that was my my right of passage, as I said. And I did something to the next apprentice anyway.
0: You couldn't wait to be the one to assign him a ridiculous task. Of course. <laughs> How did you, I mean, this the the system of, of learning to cook in France when you did, it really involves sort of hopscotching from one restaurant and learning all you can there and going to the next place. Um, were you thinking of, of it as a career at that point, or was it simply... Um, just sort of looking for the next job and the next place that you could, you know, just pick up some more skills?
1: No, I looked at it as a career. I was very serious. I mean, realized at that point, however, that the role of the chef was very, very low on the social scale. And any good mother would have wanted her child to marry a lawyer, an architect, or a doctor, certainly not a cook. Of course, now we are genius. I don't know what happened, but... <laughs> But in any case, uh, at that time, uh, you know, apprentices were cheap because we were not paid, and uh, the idea was to conform, quite different than now. That is, you went somewhere, and the chef tell you, do this, and you would not even have dare to say why. And if you had said why, it would have told you, because I just told you. That was about the end of the explanation. So I worked for like a year uh, before being allowed to go to the stove, And during that time, a lot of menial menial job and cleaning and boning and washing salad and so forth. And uh, one day the chef said, you tomorrow, you start at the stove. And until that time, my name was you. And then after he called me (laughs) by my name. But uh, uh, I didn't know that I knew And uh, so you learn through a type of osmosis, through all that year that I've been learning, uh, without giving any explanation, and then you have to do it. So it's a different way of learning than what we do now.
0: Were you learning to eat at the same time? Learning to taste? Yes,
1: Absolutely. Uh, I was exposed to things that I had never had before. I mean the seasons were very important during the you know the hunting season, the fall and there were a lot of wild mushroom, different type of game you know from pheasant to quail to woodcock uh you know wild uh, partridge and uh, rabbit and so forth and you learn how to to clean it how to skin it how to to pluck it and how to Yes, absolutely. You learn how to eat, how to taste, as well as how to, I mean, very often you have to hide yourself to taste something because (laughs) you were not supposed to. But uh, I remember one time I was doing a, a fruit salad. And we had banana, and I didn't know banana that well. They just started coming from from Algeria. So when the chef, when we used to do that, the chef said, I want to hear the three apprentices, I want to hear you whistle. When you whistle, (laughs) of course, you cannot eat. So two of us whistle, and the third one eats, you know, and that's what we did.
0: (laughs) To make sure that you weren't stealing too many banana slices. All right. Yeah. We will take a quick break here, and we'll come back in just a moment with my guest, Jacques Pepin. He is chef and host of multiple PBS cooking shows, including, of course, Heart and Soul, which is uh, airing now on KERA Channel 13 television on Saturdays at 4.30. His uh, memoir, The Apprentice, My Life in the Kitchen, has just been re-released in honor of his very recent 80th birthday. We'll be back in a minute. This is Think on KERA. I'm Chris Boyd, speaking this hour with Chef Jacques Pepin. He has a beautiful new cookbook out called Jacques Pepin, Heart and Soul in the Kitchen. That is uh, corresponding to his new PBS series. He also has just republished his 2003 memoir in honor of his 80th birthday. It's called The Apprentice, My Life in the Kitchen. If you'd like to join us, you can call 1-800-933-5372. Jacques, we were talking about the lessons that you learned as an apprentice that you would want to pass on to students and one that you would maybe save only for people who intend to become professional chefs?
1: Yes. Well, in America, and actually in France as well now, the process of teaching is quite different. Uh, people start uh, not at 13 years old as I did. They usually start later on in life, and it's a different way of learning. Uh, when I was a kid, you had to conform, that is to go and see what people were doing, and you repeat, repeat, repeat until you do it yourself without any explanation whatsoever. This is the way it was taught through a type of osmosis. Now people pay a great deal of money to go into those the culinary schools, and they are usually older, more educated, so they want to know the why. And uh, and frankly. I the a program of six months at the French Culinary Institute in New York. Uh, after six months, uh, the student can do things that I would never have been able to do after three years of apprenticeship. They learn much faster. I was, however, probably much faster with my hand because all you did was that repeat, 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 you know, to to acquire those techniques and all that. So it's a different process of learning. And, of course, we were yelled at, we were kicking the behind, and that was part of the process, which we don't do, fortunately, nowadays. <laughs>
0: I watch your hands though, and they just fly. and And I would think that even though you know chopping, you know pounds and pounds of something must get tiring, it's got to be a pleasure to be able to do that and to be able to trust your hands that way.
1: It's true there is a great deal of pleasure. I like to work with my hand. As I say, my father was a cabinet maker. Uh, in our house in Connecticut. I've done all of the bathroom in the granite and the, the granite and, and and marble and uh, uh, I paint. I uh, I do gardening. I, I do cement. I do stonewall. Uh, and I do furniture as well even. So I like to work with my hand in one way or the other. And I feel that in any type of trade which involves that type of manutention, that type of manual dexterity, whether you 're a jeweler, whether you 're a cabinet maker, whether you're a a, a cobbler you know, or whether you 're a surgeon or a sculptor, you have to learn the technique first that is to really possess your métier you know that is know your métier well and then if you really have a very good technician, then you're able to, to, to work in production and, uh, and supply a lot of people. And frankly, you're supposed to run a restaurant. Uh, that comes before the talent come. And if you happen to have talents, if you have that knowledge in your hand, then you can take your talent on a higher level. You know?
0: Do you, if you look at your hands right now in front of your face, is, is there one particular scar that always stands out to you? Or do you have scars on your hands?
1: Yes, I have scar on my index finger too, uh, probably from cut that I had, uh, cut or burned. But I mean, uh, yeah, I still have my tenth finger, you know, so that's good.
2: (laughs) Now I've done it. I've cut the
1: dickens out of my finger. Well, I'm glad in a way this happened. You know, accidents do. I pressure on the apron,
0: like so. Wow. That, of course, is from the famed Saturday Night Live sketch. Um, I think it was Dan Aykroyd playing
1: Julia Child. But yes.
0: but you were there when when the actual incident that that was based on happened.
1: Yes, actually, I was doing a book tour. I had a book called La Technique, and a following one called La Method, and that was in 1978. And I had been on the, on the Tomorrow Show with Tom Snyder a couple of times, and he asked me to come on his show in uh, Los Angeles. He was in New York, then moved on to Los Angeles, and it was for like an hour or even an hour and a half, just by myself. And he said, "Come, uh, can you come with Julia?" And I said, "Absolutely." And Julia happened to live in Pasadena. That is, she was from Pasadena. She was in vacation seeing her sister, so uh, we discussed it, and uh, we uh, I said, "Okay, I'll come. I'm coming." I'm doing a book tour so we'll meet and we'll cook and we didn't have to have any recipe because it didn't matter so Julia bought enough food to feed probably an army <laughs> and I got uh, laid there they picked me up at the airport they rushed me to the studio and I had that knife that I had in my in my briefcase at that time you could take a knife in <laughs> the plane because uh, doing from one show to another I would cut a tomato or do a rose with a, a mushroom or something like this and I had a knife with me and uh, I brought that knife to the to the set, and put it on the table. And it was maybe five minutes before we started. And Julia took that knife to cut a, a shallots and cut almost the hand of a finger, of her index finger. It was just holding by the skin. So I pushed it back together and I, I, uh, we put a towel around tight and I said, hold it tight. And Julia was a real trooper. She said, no, no problem. We go. And Tom Snyder said, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Julia said, nothing. We're going to cook. Jack is going to cook. I'm going to taste. I don't want to talk about it. And we started the show, and actually one of the first things that Top Snyder said, said, Julia, would you mind if we tell people you cut your finger? So the camera went onto her finger, and uh, uh, I think the day after, she was on the, on the Johnny Carson show, and they talked about her finger, and then I was with her on the Catherine Grosby show uh, a few days later in San Francisco. We were supposed to do Omelette, but all we talked about was her finger. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, after the show, we went out and uh, to the hospital. She had a few fillers, and we went to a um, to a restaurant that she had never been to Le and we drank champagne until two o'clock in the morning. So she was a real trooper. Yes,
0: that's a nice painkiller, I guess. <laughs> champagne yes. until two a.m. So
1: that was probably the the genesis of uh, of that show they did on Saturday Night Live. You know where she cut her finger. <laughs> yes.
0: So you were drafted, right? You were required to serve in the French military, and you ended up cooking for a number of heads of state, including Charles de Gaulle.
1: Yes. Well, at that time, it was the war in Algeria, and we were supposed to go. It was I was drafted, as you say. It was compulsory. Military service and uh, it was 18 months theoretically. I end up staying 28 months or 29 months because of the Algerian war. It would keep us longer and longer. And my brother was in Algeria uh, serving already. He was in the in the air force. We have uh, about 16 months difference, and uh, they did not send two drafty at the same time. Uh, so I would have had to wait until he come back. So I was sent to Paris, to the um, uh, to, to the the the, the Admiral uh, Mess, you know, in in Paris, and I, I worked there and started doing special dinner for, you know, the the Prime Minister of the Interior from the and so forth, and eventually. Uh, I was called to go to uh, Matignon, which is the Hotel Matignon, which is the resistance of the prime minister. It was under the Fourth Republic, so the president at that time did not have much power. Uh, It was the prime minister who had the power. And I ended up staying there for a couple of years, serving under three presidents. The last one was de Gaulle, who came on the 12th of May, 1958, I believe, yes.
0: And he didn't talk to the staff much about what he planned to eat, but his wife did.
1: Yes, well, it's always the lady of the house who organized, and uh, I would meet Mrs. de Gaulle once a week to organize the menu for the week, uh, and especially the Sunday meal, which they were very devout Catholics. So after church, the whole family, children and grandchildren, would eat. And at that point, they really wanted to eat what they liked to eat. Otherwise, during the week, of course, if I had a state dinner, and we did a fair amount of those, I served like I don't know where. Uh, Nehru, Tito, Macmillan, those were the head of state at the time that we served. And usually, when you do that, then you work out the menu with the protocol, depending how long the menu will be, how important it is, if there is any, any uh, regulation or anything that uh, you could not cook or a religious thing. So, you know, you work it out with the protocol usually. But otherwise, for the other menu, I would work it out with uh, Madame de Gaulle, yes. Hmm.
0: And what made you want to work in the United States after that?
1: Well, America was and still is, uh, you know, the El Dorado. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Golden Fleece. So a young man, uh, I wanted to go to America. I didn't think that I would stay. I said, I'll stay a couple of years and learn the language. I I was not married. Uh, You know, I could do whatever I wanted. So uh, I came, and from the first day I came to New York, I I loved it and uh, never left. (laughs) That's 55 years ago.
0: What was different about—I mean, you mentioned how different, you know, the the supermarket was from the markets you were used to shopping in. um, And and you had an offer to cook— in the Kennedy White House, but there was another job that sounded like a better deal to you because you got to stay in New York.
1: Yes, well, the point is that, to be truthful, uh, I uh, did not realize uh, the potential uh, working at the White House, too, and that because I had been with the French president, and I had never been on, well, television barely existed, But I've never been on a magazine, on on a newspaper. I've never had one interview in my life. That did not exist. I mean, the cook stayed in the kitchen. There was never any kudos. No one called you when you had a guest and you were applauded. No one ever came to the kitchen. If someone came to the kitchen, it was because something was wrong and you were (laughs) going to get yelled at. (laughs) But uh, so uh, within that context, I had no inkling or, or idea of the potential of the White House, and I was starting, studying at Columbia University, I had some friends in New York already, so I didn't really want to uh, to go to leave New York, and I liked New York, and then at the same time, Mr. Johnson, that Howard D. Johnson, who was a client of the Pavillon, I work at the Pavillon in New York, which was a famous French restaurant, um, knew Pierre Frenet was the executive chef and told Pierre, you're going to work with me and Jack one of these days. And so we all left to work with him at some point. And for me, it was a long uh, American apprenticeship, if you want. I worked there from 1960 to 1970. I learned about marketing, mass production, chemistry of food, American eating habits. I would never have been able to do what I did after. I opened a restaurant on Fifth Avenue called La Potagerie, which was a mass production type of restaurant. I opened the World Trade Center with Joe Baum. I set up the commissary. I was a consultant at the Russian Tea Room in the 80s. All of those jobs, I would not have been able to do them if I hadn't had the training that I got at Howard Johnson in addition to my French training. So it was very good.
0: To be clear, when you were working um, for Howard Johnson, you were developing recipes. You weren't like, yes. you know, on a on a fry line somewhere, um, although that's perfectly honorable work. Um, but it is strange. I, I
1: started there. <laughs> did you have to – did he require yeah, you to I, work there first? Yes, I started there in the in Rigo Park in New York. There were the biggest Howard Johnson there. I went six months behind the line there to learn how to flip burger and do things that uh, – uh, so that was interesting. Before I went to the commissary to join Pierre, and we started developing recipe, not only for Howard Johnson, for ground round, for uh, um, there were three or four divisions. You know, the Red Coast Grill and all that were part of Howard Johnson, as well as the grocery division for supermarkets. So I developed recipe for all of that. It was, and that's where I learned how to to do recipe as well, and to look at recipe. I had never looked at recipe in my life before.
0: You say that when you are developing a new recipe, taste absolutely comes first. But then the next thing you start to think about is what it looks like.
1: Yes, that's true. I mean, it has to be attractive looking. But I mean, uh, maybe we put too much emphasis now on the decoration on the plate. And as Julia used to say, you know, I don't want to eat that. Too many hand touch it you know, <laughs> when you have tiny little vegetable all arranged like in like a you know a French garden or whatever. And it's true. I mean, you think of food like uh, I don't know Indian cooking, even Chinese cooking. Uh, there isn't that much in terms of decoration. It's done, it's placed, and there is something very natural about it. And this is the way food is in France as well. Uh, a certain type of food, you know, when you get to three-star restaurant, it's different. But I mean, regardless, you have to secure the taste first. And if the taste is good, well, if it looks good too, fine, so much the better. But it is not certainly my prime consideration.
0: Let's go to the phones now at one 800 You can also email think at org, And, of course, we are also on Twitter. My handle is at Chris Boyd Think. We are speaking this hour with Jacques Pepin, and uh, here's our next caller. It's uh, Robbie on the line in Plano. Hi, Robbie.
2: Oh, hi. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, hi, Robbie. Uh, Mr. Pepin, I understand uh, you were a uh, cook for Charles de and um, I I read uh, memoirs of uh, Nehru one time <laughs> where he mentions the wonderful food he had when he visited Charles de Gaulle, and mm. I was wondering whether uh, if you could have cooked for him and if, if you I know this was a long time ago and what would you cook for a visiting head of state when you when you are uh, you know cooking for um, you know the, the heads of state do you make food. Uh, of their cuisine, or do you modify your own cuisine and make it accordingly? Uh, Could you comment on that?
1: Yeah, that's uh, actually a very good question. I mean, I am not going to try to cook as well as uh, his Indian cook, and I will never be able to do the type of curry or thing that he does. And what you want to do if you represent a country, like if I were the chef at the White House, I would want to show my country in that case in America to its best so I want to present our food the way we do it here but now there is nothing wrong by putting a little bit of an accent in the food to give um, you know another respect maybe to the visiting d- dignitaries so you know if I, I may have done something totally French that I would do but maybe put a little bit of a garam masala or maybe a little bit of a seasoning in one thing just as a, another appreciation you know I think that's the way I would do it.
0: Something that tastes a little bit familiar, but you're really wanting to to highlight the beauties of French cooking. Of course, (laughs) yes. My guest is Chef Jacques Pepin. He is host of multiple PBS cooking shows, including Heart and Soul. He's got a new, kitchen, uh, new cookbook out by that name. And he has just republished his 2003 memoir. It's called The Apprentice, My Life in the Kitchen. If you'd like to join our conversation, we have lines open at 1-800-933-5372. You can email think at kera.org or find me on Twitter at Chris Boyd think. Think on KERA. I'm Chris Boyd, speaking this hour with Chef Jacques Pepin. His series, Heart and Soul, appears on KERA Channel 13 television on Saturdays at 4.30 in the afternoon. He has just published, uh, republished his memoir, The Apprentice, My Life in the Kitchen. If you would like to join the conversation, you can call 1-800-933-5372. Jacques, I was really surprised to read in your memoir that you actually don't mind an Oreo cookie or a bit of jello now and then. <laughs> I never thought you would admit that. Is there anything you no. just do not like to eat?
1: Uh well, I'm a I am a glutton at heart, you know, so I kinda <laughs> <laughs> eat no there is thing that I like to eat less than others. But uh yeah, I love Oreo cookie and my friend Jacques Torres in New York, which is Monsieur Chocolat, you know, the a great chocolatier. Mm. Makes special Oreo cookie that he dipped in chocolate for me, and he did that on the Rachel Ro- Rachel Ray show, you know, uh, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. And yeah, I love uh, uh, Jello too. I always did. And other things. I remember when I first came here that first summer. I went with Pierre Franet at a house in East Hampton, and he had kid. At that time, we were about seven, eight years old, and his wife Betty was serving in the morning those little boxes of Rice crispy and uh, and cornflake in a box with a, a dotted line that you cut right. and open the box and put the meal directly in it. I thought that was really neat. <laughs> I loved it too. Yeah, my grandmother yes. used to
0: buy us for those. Those for us. They're so much fun when you've never seen one before.
1: Yeah. You can't find those anymore. Hmm.
0: One eight hundred nine three three five three seven two is our telephone number. Let's go um, on the phone to Valerie in Plano. Hi, Valerie. Hi, and hi, Chef Pepin. Thank you so much for hi. everything that you have said and shared, and for all your um, television shows and books.
1: Thank you. And you
0: mentioned. Thank you. It is a great privilege to speak with you. Um, you mentioned Julia Child earlier. Um, of course, she was the face of French cooking for Americans before we got to know you. And I was wondering if you had any additional thoughts, I know you both said and wrote a lot about your relationship, but, you know, reaching 80 yourself now, if you have anything additional that's come to mind about your friendship with her. And then also, was interested in your thoughts about the, the new faces uh, going forward and who you think um, might be representing French cuisine going forward.
1: Well, uh, certainly, I met Julia in 1960, 6 so that's, and you are from... I don't know, 45 years of her life or more. So we became very friends. And at that time, when I met her, I met her in New York in the house of Helen Macaulay. Helen McCulley was the full editor of McCall House Beautiful. She kind of became my surrogate mother. Uh, She was never married to, and would tell me, don't do this, don't dress (laughs) this way. She spoke with James Beard every day for like two hours on the telephone. So I met James Beard within a few weeks after I was there. Then I met Craig Leborn, who came to the pavilion to uh, to do a piece on the pavilion. And then I met... uh, 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 you know, Julia at Helen's house. So I knew the trinity of cooking, if you want, within the six or eight months after I was in America. So that can tell you how small the food world was at that point. And, you know, uh, uh, Julia and I worked at Boston University together a great deal. She lives in Cambridge, in Boston, and I've been teaching at BU for like 32 years. So we used to, each time that I went to BU... And uh, I cook with her, whether it's uh, in her house or uh, with the student. And so we we are very friend and very comfortable with one another, meaning that we argue all the time and (laughs) drink a lot of wine. That's what (laughs) we do.
0: You write that as a kid, you never thought of food being separate from wine. They were just things that were part of a regular day.
1: Yes, that's true. That's a very good point. I think I mentioned that in my book, that uh, a few weeks after I was here, I was invited by someone close to New York that I had met. I came on a boat, on a student boat. We are coming back from Europe. And he had two kids about my age, maybe a bit younger, and I went to see them a weekend. And uh, I remember I came in the late morning. They picked me up, and uh, it's very close from New York. I took the train. And uh, around uh, 11.30 in the morning, they said, do you want a sandwich? I said, no, not really. In my head, I said, I'm not going to ruin my lunch having a sandwich now. It's 11 o'clock. Well, this was lunch, (laughs) which I did not realize. (laughs) So anyway, we had dinner at night. And when they served the dinner at night, I still remember I did a pot roast in my honor, I suppose. And I look and see people eating. I was waiting. I was waiting for two things which I never realized before always been on the table for me, which was a basket of bread Mm -hmm. and a glass of wine. And neither of those were on the table. But eventually, yes, I better start eating. because, (laughs) Yeah, it was so much part of it. And now for many people, it is this way in this country as well. But uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, half a century ago.
0: (laughs) I would imagine for you um going out to a new restaurant when you're not you know having a big night out, you just wanna eat something and you don't want to cook yourself i mean are you ever tempted to like go incognito because you're gonna show up and the chef's gonna hear that it's you and and sometimes you just wanna get in and out and just have a meal
1: well, yes, I mean, as I said. You know, in Connecticut, where we are, we are our favorite restaurants, a small restaurant, mm-hmm. and certainly one is a Chinese restaurant that we eat there uh, maybe once a week, or once every two weeks, uh, which we love the food. So, you know, there's no us there, and there is no fuss, uh, certainly. Uh, I don't like to have much fuss. I like to have very simple food. I, uh, I, Especially as I get older, you know, when you're a young chef, you tend to... Put more on the plate and add to the plate and make it more complex and complicated and another garnish, another. (laughs) And when you're older, as I am, you tend to take away from the plate, you know, (laughs) to clean it up, to be left with one, you know, one simple tomato, the right temperature, right from the garden, with a bit of coarse salt and a bit of olive oil on top, and you don't need any more embellishment, you know. So. You know, your metabolism change and you change. But usually uh, I would always go back to the food, you know, that, uh, you know, you cannot escape your youth, who you are, and to the simple food with straightforward taste that I had when I was a kid, you know.
0: Let's go back to the phones. This time we have Ayub on the line in Dallas. Hi, Ayub.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: Very well, thanks.
1: How are you? Thank you for taking my call.
2: and It's a pleasure talking to you, Mr. Jacques.
1: Hi, how are you?
2: Uh, good thanks thank you for asking uh, my question is uh, I've been in the food industry for the past 25 years and uh, I've had a restaurant uh, mostly I started with pizza Italian restaurant in New York upstate New York and uh, but I've had this uh, 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 desire to open up a fusion place I can cook Chinese I can cook I'm not a certified I'm not I never went to school any one of these CIA schools or culinary schools but I just have a knack for cooking because my mother, my sister, they always cooked and I've learned how to cook and I use all sorts of different things, um, uh, without recipes. I mean, I just, you know, photographic memory from, uh, Miss Julia Childs to Bobby Flay, who, who I've met in New York, a great guy mm-hmm. and, uh, a Molto Mario and all these guys. I just want a, a, a some sort of a ingredient or a, A formula to open up a fusion restaurant.
0: Any thoughts there, Jacques?
1: Yes, well, you know, why not? You follow your passion. I mean, fusion is fine, but it can lead to confusion, (laughs) you know, uh, because. sometimes people expect to have something. If you go to your restaurant and you have a couple of uh, very good dishes that you do, regardless of whether they're Italian, French, or Chinese, people will come for those dishes and they want them to be there. That's why you go back to a restaurant. And one of the hardest things to do in a restaurant is to have consistency, to have it good, good each time and do that. You're not there really to express yourself. You're there to please your customer, I mean, in my opinion. And what you have to do to Please, your customer is make them happy. Now, there is nothing wrong about fusion to a certain extent. This is what I do too, as an American cook now. But I mean, you do it not for the sake of being different. You do it for the sake of being good. That is very often uh, when you have fusion done by a very good chef. Then it is backed by many many years of practice and it's much more solid than it seems. Now, very often, young chefs are going to throw things together for the sake of being different, to have different ingredients put to, together. That doesn't have any value to me, because that doesn't last. You know? So, again, you know, if you, are, if you are a good chef, as you said, and uh, if you have a very good dish that you have, then go ahead, do it. You know? And I'm sure that uh, if the price is good and if the food is good, you'll be successful.
0: Is there an ingredient or a dish that you can taste and instantly think of your mother?
1: Oh, yes, several of those, several of those. I mean, food memory is very important uh, to me. And uh, I, I had actually, not too long ago, I gave a lecture on on food memory. And there is certain very specific dish, which I remember from my mother, uh, my aunts, uh, others, you know, my sister-in-law, other, my wife. Other, I mean, my wife was born in New York City, but from a Puerto Rican mother and a Cuban father. So there is a certain kind of dish that comes from her. And yes, uh, uh, all of those dishes uh, in the context of food memory, you know, when you talk about Proust remembering a thing mm-hmm. past in Proust, then you talk about those affective memories, that is, the memory... Of the senses, that is, of the of the hearing, of the taste, of the smell, and all that, and I can walk in the in the in the wood with my dog, and I smell mushroom, and all of a sudden I am eight years old, mushrooming in the wood with my father and my brother. So, though the fec- affective memory or memory of the senses are very, very powerful, and certainly for a for a cook they are.
0: Are your grandkids still little or
1: older now? I'm sorry?
0: You're a grandfather, right?
1: Yeah, yes, yes. Still little ones? I'm cooking with my granddaughter. I have one granddaughter, Mm -hmm. which is 11, and she's turning 12 years old. She's been on several of my shows. She's in several of the shows at Heart and Soul. I, uh, she was even in some of the show, uh, the series that I did five years ago. And now I'm planning to do a little series with her. Just the lesson of a grandfather, you know, small, small uh, recipe, simple, I mean, table manner, all kind of little thing that uh, I think uh, I would enjoy doing with her and that people can learn something from.
0: Is there something that she asks you to cook when when you're going to be together?
1: Oh, yes. Uh, There is certain certain type of thing I ask her what do you want me to cook for you Uh, she loves like all kids a lot of chocolate and Mm. sweet things and all the but she she likes actually basically everything except maybe the last time she uh, when we when we are at the house and we do a menu and we we'll write the menu and everyone signed that menu. I have that uh, for 50 years that I've been married. Uh, she wrote in the menu she didn't like the head cheese that I did. Everything was good, <laughs> not your head cheese. I said, it's okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you have always portrayed yourself as a craftsman, whereas I think a lot of these new generation celebrity chefs are very comfortable being understood as artists and that's the way they think of themselves. Have your ideas changed about that?
1: Not really. I mean, there is certain part of artistry in the great chef, like, uh, I don't know, Thomas Keller, uh, uh, Jean-Georges, or uh, uh, in New York, or Daniel Boullieu. Yes, but the part which has to do with artistry, I mean, the, the creation of a dish... Uh, it's a little moment in time when you thought of an idea and you come out with that. But then for years now, you have to serve that dish and do it so that it's consistent, always the same, do it well, and refine it in depth, more in depth. So the great deal of what we do has to do with, uh, with technical uh, ability, that is, with being a craftsman. And there is a little bit of, uh, maybe or artistry, but not, not that much. We are artisans, really. I mean, we are mashed potato maker. That's what we are.
0: (laughs) You're also a very good writer. Did that come as a surprise to you when you realized that you really, you weren't just creating cookbooks with recipes, but you like to tell stories in these books as
1: well? Yes. Well, I like to teach, unfortunately, again, which is my result of being in America, I went back to school for many, many years at Columbia University in New York, and so I did further my education, something that I would not have been able to do in France, or not that I knew of. Uh, so that's I'm indebted to that, to, uh, to America certainly, and I did. I was pushed by Helen McCullough to start writing articles, and I did, and for about 10 years I had a, a, you know, a column in the New York Times and went on to, to write some books. Yes, it's uh, it's something which satisfied me also. And I like to teach. Uh, you know, whether I teach, I used to teach, as I say, skiing, uh, that's how I met my wife, but whether I teach skiing or cooking or any other things or gardening, it's the same thing for me. There is a process, which is very Cartesian, you know, of trying to break down things and make it it simpler and explain. And I do enjoy that process. And I I think that's what I am first and foremost. I am a teacher, you know, cooking teacher.
0: Chef Jacques Pepin's new PBS series is called Jacques Pepin, Heart and Soul. It airs on KERA television Saturdays at 4.30. His memoir, The Apprentice, My Life in the Kitchen, has just been re-released. Jacques, it is always a pleasure. I so appreciate you making time for us today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me, and I hope you have better weather in the in Houston than we are in New York. It's cold today.
0: Cold is here too, but we'll survive. Have a great day. Okay. Think thank you. Thank you. Produced by Stephen Becker and engineered by Shelley Canavy. Lindsay Connect is associate producer, and Jeff Whittington is executive producer. I'm on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think. I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.